So as we look at the lesson this morning, it's entitled Paul's... Let me flip. I just about taught last week's lesson again. I told you I'm struggling this morning. It's called God's Wrath Against Mankind. God's Wrath Against Mankind. And our lesson texts come from Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. Our related scripture is Psalm 19, 1 through 6, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 20, and Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. The place is in the city of Corinth, and the time is in A.D. 50. That's 56 years after the birth of Jesus Christ. And we'll go ahead and start our, our scripture reading this morning, which starts in Romans 1.18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, dishonor their own bodies between themselves. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use that into that which is against nature. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Who knowing the judgment of God, they that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And we'll read our golden text together this morning. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Romans 1.20 And I'll read our golden text illuminate for us. Our Golden Text Illuminated says, My family has a humorous little response when someone excuses himself or herself. When that person says, Excuse me, someone else usually chimes in with, There is no excuse for you. It almost always gets a grin. In Paul's letter to the Romans, however, he speaks of an excuse in very serious terms. He finds nothing funny or lighthearted about the idea. When Paul states that those who rejected God are without excuse, it is a blistering critique about a present reality. In Romans 1.18, the apostle wrote that God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and describes those people as those who hold the truth and unrighteousness. To hold means to hold down or suppress. 
It pictures people suppressing the truth about God. It is not for lack of testimony that people reject God. The invisible things of God, His eternal power and Godhead are clearly revealed in His creation. Creation testifies to the existence and power of the Creator. This natural revelation is revealed to all people, even those who are not acquainted with the Bible. As such, those who reject the true God are without excuse. The problem with these people is not lack of revelation from God, but rather that their own willful refusal to acknowledge God. They have no place for Him in their lives. Their hearts are not seeking God. Instead, these are people who have created their own gods. That What are these gods? They are idols of people's own choosing. People went on to show how God allows these people to wallow in their sinful behavior. Certainly, God does not delight in this behavior. However, when people demonstrate that they are not interested in what He is trying to tell them, when they are unwilling to acknowledge His clear revelation, He steps back and lets them reap the consequences of their own behavior. He allows the harvest of what they have sown in their lives. Sadly, such people are harvesting destruction. They may seem to be doing well, but they will ultimately perish. We know their end and their foolish attitudes lead them much to be pitied. Those who deny God's existence are deceiving themselves. There will be a day when all will be compelled to confess Jesus as Lord. Those who are not His own will be forever cast from God's presence. How do we respond to unbelievers? We show them Christ's love. Remember, we are all like them before we became followers of Christ. We need to reach out with wisdom and gentleness. We need to extend grace instead of judgment. We do not have to approve of their sinful behavior to love them. Whatever happens, it, we cannot stop ministering to them or become discouraged, for we are not without hope. God loves these people, and so should we. Now, I really appreciate this lesson because um, a lot of times people want to preach the hope and the love of God, but they leave out the wrath of God. Now, if we want to look at reality of God, we've got to look at all parts of God. And the fact of the matter is, God is just and being full of wrath towards us. We are sinners. In absence of God's grace, there is no hope. We have broken the law of God, and without Jesus, we're condemned. And God is, has every right to pour His wrath out on His creation that has done nothing but disobey Him. You see, without Jesus in the picture, that's all we have is the absolute wrath of a sovereign, righteous, holy God poured out upon creation. And... and and the, we, we really can't expect nothing else. So as we look at God and we think, well, we want justice. We, no, we don't want justice. We want grace. We should plead for God's grace because without God's grace, again, we are condemned to a devil's hell. That's the reality. But because of the grace of God and the hope we have in Jesus Christ, we may inherit heaven and escape hell, all because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Let's look at our questions this morning to get to our lesson. Question 1 asks, when and how is the wrath of God poured out on humanity? Paul focuses on the depraved of the Gentile world, and he declares that God's wrath was even then being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. To be sure, the description of God's end-time wrath in Revelation 6-19 is frightening, but he also meets out punishment in a variety of ways in the present. And a lot of people, uh, people who may be uneducated in, in the text and things, they don't realize that. They view, well, i got this life here on earth. I can do what I want now, and God's not going to make me pay for it until I die or until God, Jesus comes back. But that's not the reality. We see all throughout the Old Testament, God sends plagues and sends uh, uh, conquering and all kinds of things upon the nation of Israel because of their disobedience towards God. They didn't do what God said, and what did God do? God disciplined them. 
Sometimes our trials and tribulations in our lives are discipline from God. There are times that the awful things that befall our world are disciplines from God. Um, they're not all that. So the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust, but there are times when it is that. And if you really want to look at the reality of it, just look at sin. There is consequences to every sin. And if we look at just the physical side of things, there is consequences physically to sin. People who get involved with addiction and they don't have self-control, and, and they, what happens? Their body starts, starts suffering from that. They begin to get sick. They begin to, to go through different illnesses. People who are living ungodly lifestyles, what happens? Every single time you see the physical consequences of that. You can go up and down our streets anymore and see the people my age that are walking that look like they're 90. And a lot of it is because they, they, it is a physical problem based upon... Uh, what has taken place in them. And we see that with our, our leaders. Look at our world leaders. Our world leaders go through some awful things sometimes. Why? Because they don't choose God's way. And it is naturally made into us. It's just the way we are. Um, even with gluttony, eating too much, overconsumption. Well, you know, we all are, I think, guilty of that from time to time. But what happens if we walk in that? Heart problems, things like that take place. So every sin is not only an eternal consequence, there is a physical consequence today. We even look at our homes. Look at our, our homes around us. Uh, they're falling apart for the most part. Kids are unruly and disobedient. We have parents who, who, are, who are not together anymore and things like that. And it's all because sin creeps in in some way. It may be something as simple as greed, something as simple as lying, which we view as, you know, I hate to say it, we don't equate that as to the big sins, but all sins are equal. And when those sins creep in, you start to have bad things happen. That's why we really had to guard our homes and guard our hearts that we can have uh, godly lifestyles, godly living, and godly results. Without that, there are always consequences to our actions. Like even with greed. Folks, we don't, people don't talk about greed much because we live in a world that loves money. But look at those out there that's trying to hoard all their money for themselves. They're miserable. These people are going out and they're, they're, they, you see it, they're always fighting, they're always arguing, they're always in trouble with the law. Why? Because they're battling greed. It's a sin battle that is taking place. So we need to be very careful to realize that our, our punishment may not just be out there. Our punishment could be here today. So the question two, how does the, how does the created world point to the existence of God? Nature reflects at least the existence of a creator, while some look at nature and theorize that it was the result of a cosmic accident that set biological evolution in motion. This is simply a manipulation of the evidence, which actually points to the ultimate creator. Both the complexity and predictability of creation leads to this conclusion, as the very first verse of the Bible affirms. And this is one of the reasons why Easter is my favorite holiday, is because, I mean, when we celebrate the resurrection, what is nature doing? It's resurrecting. The flowers are starting to bloom. The trees are coming back out. You are seeing life come from death every spring, which is a type and figure of the very thing we are celebrating in church, being the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, there's plenty of times that me and Sadie like to look at the stars, and we'll go out at night and look at the beauty of the stars, and I say, just think, God hung all those stars, stars that we will never even see with our eyes. God is so great and so glorious. He hung those things. He created planets that we can never get to, but God is so great, He was able to do all that. I mean, that really just testifies to how awesome and mighty God is for His ability to do those things. And the world testifies to all of these things. We just have to have our eyes open. 
Um, it always, and we actually had the DVD downstairs in the Sunday school classroom, but the story of Amazing Grace, it always floors me to, to think that that guy, a slave trader, went into Africa and the, the, the tribe people there who had never even heard the gospel knew of a creator God. They sung songs about a creator God who created all things. And while they maybe they didn't know the complexity of the gospel, they still had a general idea of the God that we preach without ever have seen anyone who knew of a Bible or anything else. It just shows how God can get the message out without all the fancy things that we use sometimes, just through the things around people and in nature. That's why when someone says, you know, well, the, the gospel is not going out in certain parts of the world. God is in charge of the gospel. And if God wants it to get there, it's going to get there one way or another. Uh, we just have to believe and trust God for the sovereignty he has in delivering his message, the control and authority he has in delivering his message. Number three, what happens when people reject the knowledge of God? Yes, and people have created idol gods. They, they claim to be Christian, but they are not the Jesus of the Bible in which they are preaching. And just by throwing the name Jesus around, it really doesn't mean a whole lot. And we have a lot of different denominations or religious organizations that claim to be Christian, but yet when they preach God, they don't preach God, they don't preach Jesus as being divine. They don't preach Jesus as being God. They'll say, well, he was a prophet, he was a good man, he was the son of God, but they won't preach him as being part of the Trinity God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. When you take that out of the equation, you've literally brought down the level of Jesus instead of elevating him. You're tearing him down. And we have to preach Jesus big. We have to preach Jesus the way he truly is, that he is God. He is divine. He is sovereign. He's in all control and in all things. He is equal to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And if we don't preach him in that way, you're really beating him down and you're taking a false God. In the same way as Sister Brenda said, if you don't accept God, you don't accept the moral code of God. We wonder why the world doesn't live godly because the world don't know God. It's as simple as that. Um, and we have people who, who claim, well, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't like the things Jesus tells me to do. But you don't, it don't work that way. You don't get part of it. You don't get Jesus as Savior, not Jesus as Lord. If Jesus is going to be your Savior, he needs to also be the Lord of your life. And we have this, especially in America, if you look at TV and what I call cultural Christianity, they'll talk about how much they love Jesus, and they'll have the little words on their walls, as blessed is this home, and all this really pretty southern stuff. But then you see that they have the beer bottles in the fridge, or they'll, they'll have uh, whatever things that they're doing on TV, they're cussing and going on and all kinds of foolishness. Well, that's not Christianity. That's culture. That's, that may be southern, or whatever you want to call yourself, or old, what, but it's not Christian. If you're going to preach him and you're going to say you believe in him, you've got to live after him. If you don't live after him, then you, you missed the mark. Uh, you, you don't know the God of the Bible. You know the God that maybe you... And see, and it's, again, it goes back to tradition being an idol. And I, being in the Bible Belt, we're all a little bit... You know, we have our family traditions and, of, of, of Christmas and Easter and Christian traditions. And all those are great. I come here walking into Granny's house on Sunday morning and she had... Um, 
Yeah, Alfred, Alfred Setzer preaching on the radio and there was biscuits cooking on the stove and gravy and I can remember that and I can still smell the, the grease cooking that in the morning. That was, part of, you know, that, that was part of my Christian experience growing up was part of that. But it can't end there. That can be a good seed planted and those are precious memories. But we have to get deeper into the Word and see Jesus fully for who He is. Not just those good feelings we get, but that He is the God of wrath as well as He is the God of love. And that while He loves us, he has expectations for us. And those expectations are not there just to command us and to bully us, but it's because He wants us to have an abundant life. And the only way we'll have an abundant life is if we do the things He tells us to do and not do the things He tells us not to do. We have to accept that moral code as our daily life. Not just on Sunday, but seven days a week, 365, 24 hours a day. It has to be part of everything that we do. Uh, number four. Instead of worshiping the true God, what do people do? Those who reject the knowledge of the true God in antiquity became idolaters. Instead of worshiping the invisible God who created everything, they began fashioning their own gods that resembled both men and beasts. Thus, worship of false gods still exists in many parts of the world. And while most people today may never bow before a little graven image, they still worship false gods, the idols of modern society. Popularity, possessions, and power, to name a few. Yeah, and, and folks, people are seeking pleasures and power at all cost. Um, and they will justify themselves all the way to, into the grave. They'll say, well, you know, I, I know God don't really like us a whole lot, but, you know, look what came of it. So I guess it's okay. That's, that's not what God says. He's very black and white on most topics in the world. Um, we had a question in Vacation Bible School years ago, so long ago that the person who asked it is a grown man now. But the question was asked is, you know, the Bible covers pretty much every topic, doesn't it? And my answer was, yes, it pretty much does. There is nothing that you can really get yourself into that the Bible doesn't have a biblical answer for. The thing is, we have to listen and follow that biblical answer. If not, then we are seeking these, these idols. Um, these excuses we make for sinful behaviors are literally idols. Um, I could probably be much more successful in my life if I, I took the easy route and I'd done the things for pleasure and power and all those things. Um, however, I, I try my best to, if I have to suffer a little bit, then I'll just suffer a little bit. Um, that's just the way it has to be because the Bible tells us, and I, I quote it quite often, that our hope be of this world will be of men most miserable. We cannot allow the devil to snare us just to enjoy the physical things that are here, because this is such a small part of our existence. If we live to be 110, that is such a small part of our existence compared to eternity, wherever we wind up at, be it heaven or hell, we must prepare ourselves while we're here for that forever, not just for what's coming tomorrow. Um, if we only worry about tomorrow and not eternity, we're going to may enjoy life here, but it's only going to be for a moment. And when eternity comes, we're going to find ourselves in some deep, dark trouble. We need to focus on the eternal things of life and not just the things of this present fleshly world. Listen, the world's that's all they're worried about. What's going to happen tomorrow? What can I get? Give me, give me, give me. We can't be that way as Christians. The church must be different. The church of God must be focused upon the things of God and not the things of this world. Amen. Presidents and sports figures and even just sports in general, it's, it's just, they're consumed by stuff like that, and it's, it's an idol to me. And we've seen that this year, I think. I think this year has revealed the idolatry of, of the heart of man because, you know, we've had times that the world is falling apart around us 
And the whole thing is, well, we got to get kids on the sports field. Got to happen. We, we've got to get in a Major League Baseball, we've got all our major sports, and they've well, they got to get back out there and start playing again. We, we have to have that. But no one, you know, very few have said, we've we got to have church. Very few have said, well, you know, we, we've, got, we've got to do things of God. That, that's always been secondary. The first thing that always has been closed down is the churches. And the statement was made, and I don't know if it may be correct, that the, the, first thing that sh- the last thing that should close should be the schools. And I'll go one step farther. The last thing that should be closed are the churches. Because you can, you know, there's ways you can do other things. I have learned the last year how to do curbside pickup, which I'll probably never go back into a store again because I'm lazy now. Um, I thought the other day, I'm fully vaccinated. I could walk into Walgreens and buy something. I don't really want to. I'd rather just pull up to the drive-thru, grab it, and go. And that's probably what I'll do the rest of my life as long as they'll let me. Um, but at the same time, you can't, you can't imitate church. Online church is, is, is good when it's necessary. And, you know, some people, that's just it's the only way they can get it, and that is wonderful. But... Nothing can replace the assembling of the saints. It's just it's irreplaceable. Uh, the Bible even tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Now, at the same time, I know people. i got friends that are in Longhorn and, and, and Olive Garden and all these places, but they find the church to be too dangerous to venture into. Well, at that point, in my mind, that's an idol. That's an idol. You, you, are, I, you, you are making priorities of things. And these other social aspects have become a priority while God's become secondary. And we have to be very careful of that. That's a very fearful thing for me to see the world getting into that in that zone. Um, I hope the online church all around us continues to a certain level because you're always going to have people that are sick, people that are shut in, that that's a huge blessing to. So it needs to go on. But at the same time, I am fearful to a certain extent that we've become comfortable that you know, we, we worry more about getting to the restaurant, getting to the ball field, getting to wherever we're going, instead of getting to God's house. And God's house and God has to come, number one, above all things. That's why Sadie is virtual, but, but I try to bring her here and have her sitting behind me every Sunday. Because to me, this is more important than school. I mean, I'm a teacher, but this is more, much more important to me than that schoolhouse. Because this is eternal. This goes on forever. God has to be number one. We have to keep that in perspective. God has to be number one of all things. That's why I said when I lived in Chattonville, it used to burn me up going through town. I look and the ball fields were full on Sunday morning, but Sunday school classes were empty. It drove me crazy. Still drives me crazy. Uh, Number five. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? It's been around forever and it's a common practice in the pagan world. Basically. Yeah, um, as it had been around for a long time and was rather common in the ancient in the pagan world, the practice continues today as governments, along with even some religious denominations, place their stamp of approval on the so-called same-sex marriage. While we may think that these trends developed suddenly in our time, they did not. The Mosaic Law addressed the practices in the 15th century. And, uh, and it is true. Sin is not new, folks. Uh, there is not a new invented sin that people didn't, know, you know, didn't exist in biblical days. Uh, it is more accepted. It is more widely glorified. But it's all went on forever. The thing that we have to address and teach people is that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Period. That's it. Um, there are several things. In my opinion, the, the breakdown of the biblical marriage happened with no-fault divorce. People may disagree with me on that, but I, I believe you know there are the biblical reasons for divorce. It's in there. But a no-fault divorce that was brought around in the 80s and accepted, that's when things become... For my generation of, well, who cares, get married if it don't work, we'll just get divorced two years from now. That's not biblical. That's not how a marriage is supposed to operate. It's supposed to be something that we work on and that we grow in and that we, we fix the problems if at all possible. And then, obviously, the Bible gives us criteria in which there are 
reasons, biblically, that divorces take place. But they are few and far between. That's why it must be very clear. But if we look, again, at the accepted world, that's almost considered bigotry by today's standards. Uh, people will say, well, you know, you've got to just be open to anything. But that's not biblical. I mean, I'll tell you right now, the day comes when I'm forced to do marriages I don't agree with. I will hang, hang up my papers to do marriages. It's as simple as that. I will not do it. Uh, no way, no how. There have been people that I have told no to in the last year. For some reason, everyone got married during the corona year. I don't know what happened, but I had more people ask me to do weddings in the last year than ever in my life. I had at least six that I was requested to do, and I've done one out of six because that one was a biblical qualified marriage. And I was thrilled to do it, and I, I was, was glad to be asked. I'm doing another one in May that is a biblically qualified marriage. But we need to teach, especially our young people, that. That there are biblical qualifications for a marriage. That, and it's not just one man and one woman. That is part of it. But also, what do they believe? We're commanded for Christians to marry other Christians. Folks, you know, here's the thing. Not every person raised in church is a Christian. Our kids need to know that they need that. That needs to be a conversation they have before the ring goes on the finger. What do you believe? Because here's the thing: you have kids, and you're un, you know one person doesn't believe in God and one person does. What are you, are you going to raise the kids in church? If one person's Muslim, one person's Christians. Where do they go to church? That's a problem. That's something that really has to be ironed out before the. Like I said again, before the ring is on the finger, and that is the reason God gives us that qualification. They, it should be two Christians, man and woman, to be married with the, with the idea that this is a lifelong commitment. Um, and again, that's just not being said enough. It's more of just, it's, people are more in love with the ceremony than they are with the, the biblical idea. We've got to get back to the biblical pro- properties of marriage. Um, we also, I hate to say it, but in the modern world, we've also told our kids, well, just wait, just wait, 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 10 years, 20 years, whatever. That just causes more problems. If you know, if if they get into a biblical situation for a biblical marriage, marriage should be encouraged. Marriage is the foundation of the Bible. But again, what do we do? We just say, no, you don't don't get married. Don't get married. Just date forever. It's not what the Bible says to do. If you get in that situation, the Lord leads you to be married. It needs to be encouraged. It needs to be biblical, but it needs to be encouraged. Uh, number six, in reference to people's sinful desires, what does it mean that God gave them over in Romans 1.28? And you see this. People get into a place where they are reprobate. And basically what that means is God doesn't deal with them any longer. And it's heartbreaking to see a person get to there. Because the bottom line, we are in this dispensation of grace. But God does not promise us grace forever. There comes a point where we have allowed our heart to become so hardened that God no longer deals with us. Think of the Pharaoh in, in the book of Exodus. As the Pharaoh rejected God, God reciprocated that by hardening his heart. Pharaoh rejected God. God hardened his heart. Well, God's the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. It's the same thing in our day and time. People come, they hear the gospel, and they walk away. They come, they hear the gospel, they walk away. Well, how long does God supposed to keep, you know, keep reaching out, reaching out, reaching out? Now, we, we see, I mean, God, I'm thankful God reached out to me for quite a while, and sometimes he does. But there's no guarantee of that. That's why I encourage people to say, listen, if you're thinking about salvation now... You need to really look at Jesus for who he is now and not wait 10 years later because God may take allow that desire to leave you. 
And once that desire leaves, there is nothing man can do to bring it back. He turns you over to reprobate. He allows you to do what you've chosen to do because you, by your own free will, have chosen the world. You've chosen the things that go against God. That's why we see people, again, that are so deep into sin that they cannot see the light of day. Well, why is that? Because they have continually, continually, continually rejected the way of God. Look at our world. Look at our nation. What is going on? It is rejecting God. And because of that, and we see you know, national punishment go on in the Bible. We see national reprobate go on in the Bible with the nation of Israel. What does God do? He removes that hand of blessing upon them. We can see that take place for our own country. We have problems today. We are, we are at one point in time the most powerful nation in the world, but yet we are seeing our, our power, our authority drop, 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 drop. Well, why is that? We, our people, as an overall, has rejected the way of God. And as they continue to do that, we'll continue to see the removal of God's blessing. It can happen to your home. It can happen to your, your career, your personal life, wherever. But you cannot continually reject God and expect God to be okay with that. That's not the way this works. You have to, have to turn over to God or God will remove from you. Not your salvation. He removes his hand of blessing. Uh, number... Seven, what is a reprobate mind? We touched on that just a little bit just then. And if you dealt with the, the society a whole lot or the public, you see this. You'll meet people that are so full of anger and hate that you can't even talk to them. And I see this, I've saw this in teenagers, I've seen this in parents even. They'll come in and be angry and be cussing and going on. You think, goodness, why are you so upset? And if they literally, they, they don't have a mind of God. Now, this is why we have to preach being born again as a supernatural experience. When a Christian is born again, they should be changed. Now, that doesn't mean that they're sinless, but that means they are changed. That means God does a work in them and they'll continue that work up to the day of redemption because they have the Holy Spirit. But a person that does not have the Holy Spirit, they will have a worldly carnal mind where they are completely wrapped up in worldly carnal things, that they are full of anger, they are full of hate quite often, um, and they, you see them, they don't really understand the things of God. Uh, there has been times in my own personal life that I've been done wrong, and I've had to tell the person, listen, I know you're mad, but I still love you, because God has told me to love you. And that don't make a whole lot of sense to my fleshly side, but my spiritual side says that's what God said to do, that's what you have to do. There's no other way around it. Um, and if we look at that as a Christian and look at what God has us to do, it means so much more. When I was unsaved, at least for me personally, I thought all that was great. I was glad that I had Christian friends and family that had done Christian things, but I said, I don't really see the, the value in it. But once I was saved, there was no other way. Once I was saved, I, it was, again, just supernatural. God told me you know, somehow by the working of the Holy Spirit that the way of God was the only way. And for me, the idea of living in unrepentant sin is just so foreign in my way of thinking now. For the unsaved, it's, it's just life. It's nothing new. So that's why, that's why when we, the Bible talks about the saved and the unsaved, it's very one way or the other. You have goats or sheep, wheat or chaff, heaven or hell. There's no in-between. And it's the same today. We don't have, well, they were pretty good. No, they're saved or they're unsaved. Period. They're reprobate. They have a mind of God. No in-between. Number eight, what is fornication? Sexual immorality is a general term for sexual immorality or a 
minority assembly of both pronunciations spelling thus could easily have been confused. And Yes, now I'll do my best to keep it G-rated since we do have kids in the room, but it's just like this. It's basically living immor immorally with a person that is male or female, and that's it. And we try to make this being one thing or the other. No, it's any kind of immorality. In other words, again, it goes back to that biblical view of your relationship with other people. And I want to take this a step further and say we need to have a biblical view of our relationship with any every people in our lives. We need a biblical view of our relationship with our girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, uh, with the people that we work with, a biblical view of our relationship with our parents, our brothers and sisters. We need to make sure that relationship is always in that the way the Bible spells it out to be. Um, even within the church system, and I think this is important here because we do have a lot of multi-generations in our church, and I thank God for that because if you don't have multi-generations, your church dies. But even in a multi-generational church, there's a certain respect that the younger should have for the older to learn from them. Uh, the older men to take the younger men and to teach them and to, and to grow them. Older women to take the younger women to teach them and grow them. So we need to make sure our relationships stay biblical and that we, we are very proud of that. And we need to teach our kids, listen, you're going to, and I used to tell my middle school kids when I done prayer club at Logan Middle School, I'd tell them, see, you're going to go to the high school and you're going to see a lot of unsafe people do things that unsafe people do. But you don't have to do those things. You need to be different. There is a reason that Christians around the world are becoming more it's sort of inward focus and not being out there in society as much because society is not really a good place anymore. It's very corrupt, very immoral. Um, th there have been times that I've seen things go on in school that I just have to shake my head about because I know that it's been accepted, but all I can do is just shake my head and pray for them because there's nothing else you can do legally. But the, we can teach our kids. We can tell them, listen... You need to not worry about what you see your friends doing. You don't need to worry about what you know the world is saying is acceptable. Do what God likes. And that's one thing that we tried to tell Sadie before she went to grade school. We said, listen, the one thing you need to remember is God is always watching you. And if you are doing what makes God happy, mommy and daddy will be happy. Everything will fall into place. Don't worry about nothing else. If you, you, know, if you make a mistake, make someone mad, but you're making God happy, that's okay. It's all good long as God is happy. And we can teach those to, that lesson to our kids and increase that lesson in depth as they get older, getting more detailed. But that first lesson, live a life that pleases God, can be taught to the smallest of children. And that really is the lesson that we need to focus on with our, our youngest because the world's going to rob them. I'm telling you, folks, after middle school, the world does their best to steal them. They get the hooks in in middle school. That's why I've always said if you lost in middle school, it's hard to get them back in high school. You got to keep them to that middle school age group because after that, it's, it's a challenge. It's beyond. It's, it's almost impossible without you know a lot of divine intervention. But if you can get them biblically grounded in middle school, you got a good shot at it. But that that age group is so so important. Number nine. How do we know that many people are haters of God? And here's the thing, they don't know, a lot of times they don't know they're haters of God. They really don't. They think they love God. But the problem is they love this God they created. They don't really love the biblical God. Because a person that says, you know, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, if you say, I love the Lord, then you're going out and you're lying and you're participating in drunkenness and fornication and idolatry and all the things it tells you, you know, the haters of God do. 
then you're a hater of God because you're not doing the things that God wants you to do. You don't love the real God of the Bible. You love the God that you made. In the same way, we see it really common, I hate to say it in our churches anymore, that people have created this God that is one of two things. It's easy believism, and long as I believe, it don't matter what I do or nothing else. God don't care because I believe, and he's going to forgive me anyways. That's, that's I mean, yes, he's a God of grace and a God of mercy. He's patient and long-suffering, but he is also a God that will punish you for your disobedience. And in the same thing, you have the other opposite, and people have the attitude, well... I'm perfect and I'm good and I, it's all about me, me, me and they're legalistic. They're, they think they're Pharisees basically and they think that their salvation is about them. Well, your salvation has got nothing to do with you. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sins you commit that make you need it. We are saved by grace through faith. It is a free gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. We need to realize that our salvation is full credit goes to Jesus and that we are to worship him and thank him for what he has given us. Uh, number 10, how do depraved people respond to those committing the same sins? You want to get someone saved? Tell them they're depraved. Not those exact words. Number one, most people don't know what depravity means because it's a big old, big old bobbly word. Number two, because it can be very offensive. But it needs to be. People need to understand their hopelessness. If you don't see yourself as being hopeless, you don't see your need for Jesus. That's what got my attention. I don't remember who preached it, but I heard a sermon, and the sermon basically talked about my hopelessness, that I was hopeless and I was going to go to hell because while I had good works, that's, that's what we got to realize. Everyone's got good works. I mean, if we look at the, the unsaved people around us, let me tell you something. Some of the unsaved people are nicer to me than the Christians are. They got good works. But the question isn't, do you have good works? The question is, are you good? Now, here's the thing about that question. That question has a little bit of an opinion to it. And I'll give you the example. There's times I've had kids in school, and a kid, I don't really know them, they're new in my class, the teacher say, oh, he's a good boy. Then he gets in my class, and I'm like, I don't know about that good boy yet. That, that, he ain't as good as you claim he is. But in their eyes, their standard, they meet her standard of being good. They don't meet Justin's standard of being good. Well, when it comes to salvation, it's not our standard of good. It's God's standard of good. Now, the Bible says in God's standard, none of us are good. No, not one. Now, when we realize that we are trying to meet God's standard, which is perfection, and none of us are perfect, we're all sinners, absent of the grace of God, we see that we have to have a Savior. And I'll tell you, you don't hear that a lot preached anymore. I mean, I, I don't get to go to visit a lot of churches, but I do get to watch the TV preachers. And I do try to watch a lot of them, but what do you hear a lot of times? Oh, you're, 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 you're good, but you just need to believe in Jesus. Well, no, they need to know that they're sinners, that they're lost, they're unsaved, they're condemned. And outside of Jesus Christ, we're all lost, unsaved, and condemned. But it's only through the, the sacrifice on the cross of Jesus Christ and by the grace of God that we can be saved. Outside of that, listen, we're all condemned and going to hell. But with Jesus, we're not condemned, we're elevated. We're brought to a place where we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And we only receive it through and by the grace of God and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel message. Um, this idea of trying to simplify it down, listen, that's as simple as it can get. You try to get down any farther than that, you're leaving something out. They have to have the whole message. 
Um, so Jesus Christ is the light of our humanity. He's the one who shows us. He's the one that shows us our sin. He shows us our reason for God's wrath. And that is why Paul was so confident in the gospel message outside of Christ, there is only God's righteous wrath for mankind. Let me tell you something. That should be fearful for those that are unsaved. But outside of Christ, you are going to face the wrath of God. The righteous wrath, the just wrath of God. Revelation 20 gives us the picture of the great white throne judgment. That a judgment's going to take place. And man will be judged based upon his works and the books will be open. And finally the book of life. And if the name is not found written in the book of life, will be cast in the lake of fire where they will burn forever. We know of as hell in our modern terminology. The only way to escape that is through and by Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other way.